the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. Today, we have an episode on the topic of sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait. We have two awesome speakers who will discuss sickle cell disease, both in the context of the healthcare system and also patient communities. We will address genetic counseling topics that relate to sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait, discuss medical racism, and review the importance of accessible information and education related to sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait. Podcast subcommittee member Mary Pat Bland will begin today's episode with Dr. Talisha Mayo-Gamble. Dr. Mayo-Gamble is an assistant professor of community health at Georgia Southern University's Jianping Shu College of Public Health in the Department of Health Policy and Community Health. Her research agenda focuses on implementing community engagement methods to facilitate self-care behaviors and enhance patient-centered care in adults with sickle cell disease. Mary Pat and Dr. Mayo-Gamble will discuss her article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling titled Sickle Cell Carriers Unmet Information Needs Beyond Knowing Trait Status. This article was part of the Journal of Genetic Counseling Black History Month virtual issue. This is Mary Pat Bland, and I'm happy to have Dr. Talisha Mayo-Gamble with us today. For this episode, we wanted to discuss sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease and some of the current unmet patient needs. Sickle cell trait is a condition many of us learn about in grad school, and that comes up quite a bit for prenatal genetic counselors. Dr. Mayo Gamble will share some of the needs identified from the sickle cell carrier community that we can consider for our practice. Dr. Mayo Gamble, thank you so much for your willingness to speak with us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm wondering if you could start by summarizing your study for our listeners and what prompted you to consider this topic. Yes, absolutely. I actually completed this study as part of my postdoctoral training, which was in community engaged research. And since my area of research is in sickle cell disease, I partnered with the Sickle Cell Foundation of Tennessee for my research activities. And sort of throughout my time with them, there had been persistent anecdotal descriptions from parents of children with sickle cell disease, but also individuals with sickle cell disease or who were carriers. And so some of those descriptions included questions. Why didn't someone tell me I could have a sick child? Or or um, my husband didn't know that he was a carrier for sickle cell, or I found out I had trait when I had a child with sickle cell disease. So I quickly became aware that there were problems in how we communicate about sickle cell trait and potentially that there have been very limited discussions with individuals who potentially could have a child with sickle cell disease. So this study actually explored perspectives of African-American adults with sickle cell trait on information that they perceive is needed in order to make an informed reproductive decision, meaning the decision to have a child who may be born with sickle cell disease, but also on their perspectives with regard to recommendations for how to effectively communicate sickle cell trait information. I noticed that you solicited feedback from the sickle cell community members about your study and modified it a bit as you went. I was curious about what types of insight community members shared and how that may have altered your approach. 
Yes, I used a very exciting strategy that's sort of up and coming in community engaged research. It's called a community engagement studio. This is sort of a structured way to promote engagement of your community in your research by encouraging feedback using a facilitator who's actually not a researcher. So I conducted this process prior to conducting the focus groups. And so members of the sickle cell community, including individuals who were carriers for sickle cell, individuals who actually had sickle cell, and then family members. These could also include caregivers. And so all of these individuals representing the sickle cell community offered feedback on the focus group questions, including question comprehension, for example, as well as the content of the questions. There was one area in the study that was altered and <laughs> it was unexpectedly brought up within the community engagement studio. In the past, as is the case with many studies related to sickle cell carrier knowledge, I went in with a focus on middle reproductive ages. So I was really focusing on 18 to 35. And in the literature, you often see studies that include individuals up to about 40 or 45. And the participants in the engagement studio recommended that I widen the recruitment to age 65. Now, 65 is actually unusual for the reproductive conversation. However, I was quickly reminded that an older population could offer insights on information they wish would have been available to them when they were having children. They could also offer information to other individuals with sickle cell trait about becoming a parent to a child who has sickle cell disease. And they could also offer a perspective on information needed related to any clinical manifestations associated with sickle cell trait. And of course, that would be from more of a patient perspective rather than what we have learned from the literature, which oftentimes can be inconsistent when it comes to sickle cell trait. That's super interesting. In terms of once you were actually doing the study and reviewed the feedback from your focus groups, what was most surprising to you about your results and what was consistent with what you expected? So let's begin with what was consistent with my expectations. I had previously conducted a study on knowledge of sickle cell trait in African-Americans, but I focused on African-Americans who were unaware of their sickle cell trait status and knowledge within that population was actually limited. I expected knowledge to be limited even in a population of African-American carriers. So this was indeed the case. <laughs> Most participants either had had a parent to tell them that they had the trait, only that it wouldn't matter until they were ready to have children, or they had heard that sickle cell trait had something to do with their blood. So despite being a carrier, they had this very limited understanding of what that meant for them, whether it was now or in the future. What I had not anticipated were the implications of not understanding what it means to be a carrier for sickle cell disease. So when we do not properly understand a topic, it impacts our ability to effectively communicate about that topic. For African-Americans with sickle cell trait, this actually could impact their ability to communicate with family members about a genetic condition that may be present in other family members. And then also, I would say that 
limited understanding about sickle cell trait also impacted my participants' conversations with their healthcare providers. Just pulling from some of the data within the study, there were several participants who actually felt disregarded by their healthcare providers. For some of them, they would often state that their notification letter that they received informing them of their trait status was very limited in the information that it offered. So they might have a letter that stated that their results were abnormal with no further information, or if that notification letter was actually status notification for their child who was born with sickle cell trait, it would say that your child has sickle cell trait, but not to worry because your child is not sick. And so if you back up a little bit in general, what do we do when we try to fill gaps in knowledge? Oftentimes we go to the internet and for sickle cell trait, when you go to the internet, you have some information that says that you don't have to worry about having sickle cell trait because people with trait don't get sick. And then it might have some information on the internet that talks about these rare clinical symptoms of being a carrier. And then some of these symptoms had actually been experienced by my participants. But when they tried to follow up with the healthcare provider, the provider either didn't know much about sickle cell trait or they simply stated that there were no symptoms resulting from sickle cell trait. And so if they were experiencing these clinical symptoms, it must be due to a different reason. And so when participants or individuals who are carriers, whether it's carriers for sickle cell disease or other genetic conditions, when you don't have someone to follow up with, whether it's a healthcare provider or someone in your family who might be knowledgeable, it leaves these gaps and oftentimes makes individuals feel like no one regards how they're actually feeling. That's a perfect lead into the next thing I was going to ask, which is how might your results be similar for individuals that are carriers for other conditions, for example, hemophilia or cystic fibrosis, and how might they be different? One of the things that I believe is so important when it comes to understanding what it means to be a carrier for a genetic condition is that when someone has a child with the actual condition, that might be the first introduction that that individual has with the condition. That might be the first introduction to them finding out that they were actually a carrier for a condition. And so it's really important that we consider some of the psychological implications that go along with that. So a parent might battle the guilt of passing on a gene that causes the condition. They might also battle a guilt of not realizing that they could have a child with that condition. And I would say some of the differences for carriers of different genetic conditions would be issues in funding. So recently, JAMA came out with an article. There are three times as many Americans with sickle cell disease and cystic fibrosis, but we see that more federal and foundational funding is actually allocated to cystic fibrosis. And so there's this trickle-down effect in terms of healthcare services that include education and counseling. And unfortunately, since sickle cell carriers are also minorities, this compounds some of the healthcare disparities that already exist for racial minorities. And so I think that while there are some things that are going to be very similar, sort of this limited knowledge, the psychological implications, I think there are also these policy differences that exist just because conditions such as cystic fibrosis impact one racial population, and then conditions such as sickle cell disease impact another racial group. 
So let's talk a little bit more about any analyses you might be aware of that evaluate systemic barriers that impact sickle cell carriers' knowledge about sickle cell traits or sickle cell disease. And what do you believe some of those barriers are? There are existing patterns that create barriers for carriers' knowledge. Part of this is minority engagement in their healthcare. I think that's a really important barrier here that should be considered, not just for people like me who are community-engaged researchers, but also those who are involved in genetic counseling, but who take it a step further beyond counseling and offer extended education services. So oftentimes, healthcare falls into the category of secondary or tertiary prevention. And genetic counseling offers tools needed to be proactive or active in decision-making. However, because sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease education is needed within the minority and African-American communities, it's really important to consider the patterns of healthcare engagement that already exists within those communities. And so that might include reactive education in response to an active condition or an acute clinical symptom. And so when I think about your question with these systemic barriers, I think one of those barriers is actually within the community that's most impacted. What efforts exist that you know of to close some of those information gaps for sickle cell carriers? And do you know of other efforts that might be similar or different in other conditions? I would say that sickle cell organizations and foundations have played a major role in closing some of these gaps. I have also seen foundations partner with sickle cell medical centers to offer follow-up services. For example, the center might send out the status notification to either an individual who's had antenatal screening for a sickle cell trait or to a parent of a newborn who's being notified that their newborn has sickle cell trait. And so the center might be responsible for sending out the letter, but it's actually the foundation or the community-based organization who does the follow-up. So this is sort of a model that I've seen in Tennessee as well as in Indiana, specifically for sickle cell disease. But in terms of comparing to other diseases, for the past two years, I had been a member of the Rear Disease Advisory Panel for the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And this is actually an advisory board comprised of patients, caregivers, researchers, and payer stakeholders, all with a focus on rare diseases. Many, as you know, are genetic conditions. And so when you put these individuals in the same room, we all bring a unique perspective. I have both a researcher as well as a caregiver perspective, as I have a husband who has sickle cell disease. And so putting all of us in the same room together, there are many thoughts points, whether it's from a community-based organization perspective or thinking about this as more of a policy perspective, coming together to figure out what efforts already exist or what efforts should be in the pipeline has been really important. How about kind of looping back a little bit to your paper and your study? Are there actions genetic counselors or community members have taken as a result of your specific paper to improve sickle cell carrier education? I've had several conversations with individuals in both of these areas in response to the paper. These discussions mostly have centered on efforts to update the language within notification letters, which was a really great component of 
the results and what came out of the study is sort of listening to the participants' responses about how they felt when they received their notification letter. And honestly, I would have to say that we have an ethical responsibility to ensure that there are resources offered in tandem with the actual notification letter. I think in many cases, and has been discussed uh, with members of the community, as well as with the genetic counseling community, is that we have to do better than just saying your results are abnormal, or better than saying your child has sickle cell trait, but they're not sick. And so counselors and the organization seem to understand this. I was at the American Public Health Association annual conference, and I met a genetic counselor by the name of Caitlin Russell. And she and I had a discussion about the same issue in Pennsylvania. And she actually conducted a study following my study and using my study as a guide for the information to use for her preliminary results on how parents felt when they received the letter that actually led to a change in one of the letters that is sent out in Pennsylvania. At the same time, I was actually at Meharry Medical College when I conducted the study. And so I got to work with one of my mentors, Dr. Aguinaga, who's at the Meharry Sickle Cell Center. And after receiving the results, she and I talked about the letter that comes out of their center. And so there are people who are very receptive to looking at the actual language and the actual resources that go out with the notification letters. And so I'd have to say that the greatest impact that comes out of this paper, it would have to be in influencing the content within the notification letter. I'm wondering to wrap up if there's any last points you feel like would be important for genetic counselors to know about your study or about sickle cell carrier or disease education. Anytime there is an opportunity to encourage practitioners to meet patients where they are, I like to take advantage of that opportunity. One of the recommendations that I would have is emphasizing group counseling or group education provided by genetic counselors. I think it's extremely beneficial. It's really important that we consider meeting patients where they are in terms of the newborn carrier notification. So there's no guarantee that parents understand what it means to be a carrier or that that particular parent will be around in adulthood to actually explain what it means to their child. And so I think that's the biggest gap that we're missing is that once you notify a parent that they have a child who is a carrier, then it's left until they grow into adulthood to figure out what that means. And so I think once they are adults or once they're older, then we have an opportunity to sort of reach out to community-based organizations, particularly those who service the sickle cell community or other organizations as it relates to other genetic conditions, and use that as an opportunity to provide group education on what it means to be a carrier. And if it's specific to a condition such as sickle cell disease, explaining sort of the reproductive process and what that means in terms of having a child with sickle cell disease, and even touching on some points in terms of having clinical manifestations as a carrier. And so I think that's one of the ways that we can sort of close those gaps. And I have to say, if there's something good that has come out of the whole COVID pandemic, then it would be being able to offer town hall sessions virtually. And so I really do see that as an opportunity for genetic counselors to be able to offer education as a group to adult carriers when we see that there's that missing gap between their parents receiving a letter as a newborn 
born and then these carriers actually becoming adults. Sure. So it sounds like enhanced communication all through the process of initial notification as well as ongoing education. Exactly. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mayo Gamble, for agreeing to speak with us about your research. It's so interesting to learn about community-based research and gathering that input. And we so appreciate you sharing the feedback from individuals with sickle cell trait with our audience. We really appreciate it again. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. To read Dr. Mayo Gamble and her team's full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, visit nsgc.org forward slash Journal of Genetic Counseling. For the second half of our episode, I will be speaking with genetic counselor Leanne Jimmons. Leanne is a recent graduate of the Boise State University Master of Science in Genetic Counseling program. Leanne has a passion for supporting historically excluded communities in genetic counseling, from trainees to patients. I will be speaking with Leanne about the educational video that she created as part of her graduate program capstone. The animated video titled Introduction to Genetic Counseling, Sickle Cell Trait and Sickle Cell Disease shows a brief example genetic counseling session. Through the genetic counseling session, information is provided about the genetics and health effects of sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease. Welcome, Leanne. Happy to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So to jump right in, I would love to hear how you became interested in creating a video on genetic counseling. One thing led to this thing, led to this thing, but it was actually born out of a meeting with the Minority Genetic Professionals Network, and it was more like a social kind of hangout, but it was also during, you know, all of the uproar of last summer with all of the racism really bubbling to the surface. And so we were just kind of brainstorming, well, what can we do and be active in our own field? And so we started talking a lot about improving recruitment and how do we get more diversity in our own field? The intended goal was to be used for recruitment purposes and just kind of show representation on all of the things genetic counselors do and the different communities we can help because we noticed that a lot of the educational materials out there, even though they're starting to feature some more diverse counselors, a lot of the example families and patients were white. And in my whole rabbit hole literature review, started getting into a lot of identity theory and how people choose careers. And a lot of it had to do with finding something that was meaningful to them. And often we find meaning in things that feel close to us, look like us, represent our stories. So I wanted to put out materials that had some of those more diverse stories. So you were hoping a prospective student or a student who didn't even know they're a prospective genetic counseling student might see the video and learn about our field. Yeah. And just see like, oh, this is a field that, you know, I could go into and I might be talking to people like me or can relate to those people because I think messaging sometimes with all the videos showing mostly white families being counseled, it makes it sound like, oh, genetic counseling is a service for white people, which part of it is true because the research is not equal across all ethnicities. What, you know, things can genetics do for my family if I'm not white was kind of the question it gave me. Sort of going off of that, what prompted you to pick sickle cell disease as the condition to focus on in the video? There are conditions that are more prominent in white populations that are very well represented and not just educational materials for lay people, but also for providers and often probably are thinking of the same condition that are used for examples. And sickle cell for being so 
common and so prevalent in our actual world is not proportionally given that representation in our educational materials, either for patients or for professionals and providers. That was, for me, an easy choice also because since it's more common, even younger people get this example of sickle cell disease and malaria in their early grade school classes. So it also might make the video more approachable if people see something in the title like, oh, I've heard of that, versus if I did alpha thalassemia, people would be like, oh, no, 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 I don't know what that big word is. I don't know if this video is going to be useful for me. Interesting point there. Yeah, that makes sense. Thinking about, you know, approachability as you were creating these video scripts, how did you decide what content to use in terms of actual information covered, education level, things like that? I'll start from the education part because then it also leads into my intended audience because it's all kind of connected. One big issue was length. So we know that our genetic counseling session does not take 10 to 15 minutes. But, you know, again, if you're thinking of who's going to sit down to watch this video, people in their free time don't want to watch a 30 to hour long genetic counseling session all the way through. So wanted to keep something short, make sure we hit all the main points. And then education wise, since I was aiming at prospective students, it made me think, well, who is a prospective student? Am I talking postgrads, undergrad, high school, middle school? And from there, just what we've learned in my program, at least, when we're talking about how to make our materials, our verbal language more accessible, and what vocabulary we choose, the general rule in research is that eighth grade or below is usually the safest range. And so if I'm going to make this video the most useful for the most people, I decided just to keep it at that level. If I'm going to make this available at that level, maybe it's not just going to be useful for prospective students. Maybe I should include information for someone who stumbles upon it just because they're learning about genetics or they just happen to search for sickle cell. And this is one of the things they watch, just looking for information, maybe not specific to genetic counseling. But then that's also a recruitment tool because maybe they weren't intending to find genetic counseling and they do. And now it's something that they can understand because I made it understandable at that level. Thinking about the content you chose to include, I had been wondering if you were thinking about patients or prospective patients as an audience too, because you certainly did include education about sickle cell disease in the video. You also included some important information about our healthcare system in general, such as people's experience with the healthcare system. So I'm curious more how you chose which topics to focus on and which education pieces, either for perspectives or potentially patients to include in the video. So after realizing, okay, having representation, when people see people who look like them, it's more of a draw, but why? What is an impact that someone from that background or has that understanding? What unique difference does that make? And so then looking at where are patients not being served? Where are the disparities? Where can a patient experience medical racism and where can a genetic counselor combat that narrative and what role can we play to not feed into that system? And so in just a general research of across healthcare, because we know our field is small and we don't have all of the specific research papers for every question we want to ask, three common things came up in focus groups asking Black and African-American patients about their experience in the medical system and where they might experience discrimination. And the three themes were people of color, especially Black and African-American people being characterized as non-compliant and drug seekers 
and also the stereotype that Black and African-American people exaggerate, especially when it comes to things like pain or negative experiences. So with those three themes, I had to construct a made-up patient story that could touch on each of those. That was the tricky part because obviously some stereotypes are born out of things that have happened a lot, but also with the video, I didn't want to perpetuate any stereotypes I don't want to put out that this is a situation and make people think, oh, this is what happens to everybody. So my kind of safety net is to draw from only my own personal experiences and also from talking to people who have had those experiences and making it very clear that this is where I got it. So people don't take the video or don't take my paper and think, oh, Leanne said this because this is an objective take on what everyone experiences because I definitely didn't want to make that mistake. Even simple things like choosing what my characters look like. I was like, well, I'll make her look like me because it's my voice. <laughs> and I'll use stories of things that I know have happened. So I'm not, again, feeding into that narrative. I think it's impressive how much information you were able to fit in this short video and touch on all of these various points that might come up in a genetic counseling session and address topics like medical racism. Another topic you were able to weave in was the experience of people with sickle cell trait and some of the questions that might come up in a family or family history. And I know that was talked about in Dr. Mayo Gamble's article as well. Can you talk about which medical information pieces you chose to bring in and why? Yeah. So with sickle cell trait, one of the big problems I saw is how inconsistent the messaging was about what someone with sickle cell trait might experience symptoms wise. And for the large part, like we know with most recessive conditions and carriers of recessive conditions, often you don't experience any symptoms. But we know now and have seen in many cases that sickle cell trait does put you at higher risk for a multitude of very dangerous situations with exertion, heat, dehydration, all of those things could lead to something as severe as sudden death, which is super important because all of those things are highly avoidable. So even if the risk is low, why not educate people? It is scary. So I think that's why a lot of providers and even genetic counselors, we weigh the risk and benefit of what we share with our patients and the limited time we have with them. And sometimes it, there are things that aren't useful information that will only probably increase anxiety. But there are other things that we can communicate effectively and say, hey, this is super low risk. I'm not saying this to scare you, but here are easy things we want to keep an eye on that should be avoided because we know there is an associated risk. And so in newborn screening letters, for example, in multiple states, I mostly looked at California because that's where I'm from. Um, but it says multiple times in that letter, don't worry, your baby is healthy, your baby will never get sick, your baby is not sick. And essentially that messaging to me sounded like, we're just letting you know because this came up on our screening, but you never have to worry about it again, unless you have more children. And we want to make sure both partners don't have it because then your child could have sickle cell disease. But as far as sickle cell trait, yeah, don't worry about it. It's very dismissive of what that means. And it doesn't really go into when your child is older, this is something you want to discuss again. And this will affect this child's reproductive future. I didn't like that. The letter is from the 90s still when it seems like I've had assignments at my genetic counseling program where we've made patient materials. And I'm like, can I retype this letter and send this to like the Department of Health? Would they take it? 
And then another kind of niche and specific thing I included was the risk for renal medullary carcinoma. Back to where I got my patient stories and ideas, I talked to a few genetic counselors in MGPN as well, and just put out a group message to our Slack channel to be like, hey, anyone work with a lot of sickle cell patients? I'm doing this video. Is there anything that's really important for me to cover? And Grace Ann Fisset, who works for NIH, she works with a lot of sickle cell families and has people close to her who were affected with renal medullary carcinoma. It's an ultra, ultra, ultra rare cancer in just the general population. So there's not a lot of research on it. But in one study of all the people in that study who had renal medullary carcinoma, over 85% of them had sickle cell trait. So it's the correlation versus causation because we don't have enough research on it. But for being such a, such a rare cancer that these are the only people that they could find to do the study on, and this was the trend, it raises all those red flags. In cancer genetic counseling, we often see those familial hereditary cancers in a family history, you're just looking at cancer. And if no one else has cancer, then you're like, well, maybe this is not an indication for cancer genetic counseling. This wasn't something specifically included in my program education and probably isn't in a lot of people's. So if I happen to see this, for example, in a rotation early on in my training, I would have been like, oh, just one random cancer. I wouldn't have looked further into it. But now I know it's a red flag. And if other counselors are even watching the video, which I've had some comment on it or message me on Twitter and be like, hey, I didn't know that. And I was like, I didn't either. And so I'm glad that maybe I'm helping some other people. And maybe if someone might remember this came up on a family history, maybe I should go back and look. So yeah, all of those specific little details, I like knowing that they came from people currently practicing that are all very updated since I had such a problem with how outdated everything was for such a condition that affects so many people. So I tried my best to truly make everything as current as I could get it. Yeah. And I think you brought up a great point while certainly the intention was to reach perspectives. And I think this video would be an awesome resource and show perspectives, how they could be in this field and in a position of empowering patients and being a support person and helping combat medical racism and various other things. It's also a resource that I imagine many students are using genetic counselors in the field. I learned things from the video as well. So curious to hear you talked a little bit about it, but how has the reception been? Have you heard from any perspectives? who have watched it, any patients, more genetic counselors? What have you heard from people who've seen the video on YouTube? I've heard from prospective students within MGPN because big shout out to them and that organization. They are like family and have been support from people who are other students and trainees, prospective students to seasoned counselors prospective students are like, oh, this is really cool. Like this kind of outlines what they're actually going to be doing. And then from other counselors, like I mentioned before, who talked about some of those risks that are lesser mentioned saying, this is something that I'm going to keep in mind now. If this comes up in a session, I'll know to ask more questions about it. And then just from the public or lay people who have run into it, I actually worked at a winery the past few years is how I supported myself through grad school. It was a lot of fun. Me a lot of interesting people. And when people have had a few, they really want to open up to you. <laughs> and so when people small talk and find out I'm in this field, they start telling me more about their family history and genetics. So I would happen to learn about people who were affected by sickle cell or other conditions. And then when I had this video, I was like, hey, do you want to watch this video? I have the link. You can totally say no. But one man, he actually commented on the YouTube video and I was so touched. And he was just like, this is great. I learned so much about myself. Um, he ended up getting my phone number because I was like, yeah, if you have questions, feel free to reach out. I, this 
this is the purpose of it. And he was military. A lot of his family members were military, which is how they found out about their trait status. And in the military, and especially a few decades back, they would do the testing for their own purposes to keep track of the health of their soldiers, but didn't really convey to their soldiers what this meant for them in their own life. And that was his experience and his family's experience. And he said, well, this is great. I'm going to share this with my cousins and my sister because they know they have trait too, but I didn't know any of this. And I don't think they know this either. This is important. So again, we all weigh our risk and benefits when we do anything in our lives. And for some people, going to a medical professional has more risk than benefit as far as the psychosocial aspect of receiving judgment or receiving improper care. Genetics, just the word itself, is already intimidating for people who are not familiar. So that on top of being hesitant to go to the doctor, now this is like this niche field you don't know what it's for, you're hesitant to do it. So I think the video, another just unintentional but good purpose that it ended up having is for people who are not ready to go see a healthcare professional. And they're like, what is this? What will be asked of me in this appointment? It also gave that background. And so hopefully maybe people will see that and be like, oh, these are things I'm comfortable with talking to somebody about. Maybe I should go do it myself. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think awesome point to show how things like social media or videos or other resources might be an important part of the communication to patients. It's not one size fits all. Not everybody will necessarily benefit from the first step talking to a primary care physician, for example. So I was curious to hear your thoughts going through this project and thinking about communication methods and things like you mentioned, like length of the video. Do you think that social media or technology or resources like this do have an important role in the communication surrounding sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait, or could it be improved? What thoughts came up for you about communication regarding this condition when you were doing the project? I definitely see sometimes the double-edged sword of social media where we see how easy it is to widely spread misinformation. But I think there's much more good than bad, at least of what I've seen in the medical healthcare world, especially because now you can hear directly from people who are affected and they can also find each other. So that was one thing from posting on Twitter and, you know, hashtag GC chat or hashtagging sickle cell. I had a couple affected individuals contact me and say, hey, this is great. This is something I post about all the time, how people don't talk about risk for trade or providers not listening to us or prescribing us necessary pain medication. And so I started following some of these people who reached out to me and they have thousands of followers and have this network. And I see people commenting who are so excited to find their community. I think it's great that not just providers are able to put out information information now that people who are actually firsthand experiencing it can put out their information because we all know materials don't always get updated and it's extremely validating just hearing someone who had your same experience and hear it on such a large platform. And as genetic counselors, a lot of our role is to be a patient advocate. And I think you can do that on social media, even unintentionally, just by posting one of these things. You never know who's watching it and who doesn't reach out to you. I think for everyone that reaches out to you, there's probably that spider of all the people who enjoyed it and just went about their day after. Because I do that all the time. I see people's tweets and I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. But how often do you send them a DM? I'm hoping that trend is what happened when I posted the video too. But yeah, I appreciate social media for that. We've heard on the podcast series, several genetic counselors over the past several months put in plugs for people, genetic counselors specifically to get out there on social media, add their voice to the information. I think it's awesome that you were able 
able to do that and produce this video. I know it was done as part of your master's program. Uh, so it was sort of a time limited project, but if you had more time or some funding in the future or a project, are there any next steps you can think of or other resources or videos you would want to make in the future? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, it started as a project where I really, I never had to share it. I could have sent it into my project and kept it there. But like I said, I had my program leadership, people at MGPN were like, no, 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 like this is great. Like really curbing some of that imposter syndrome and anxiety. And so once I had that encouragement, I definitely put in a lot more time than at least was expected of me program wise. It just became a passion project. And so if I had more time, different resources, I mean, funding wise. So one of my advisors that ended up being on my committee, Austin Bland, he is one of the coordinators for MGPN. He has experience making videos. And so he had experience with the animation software that I ended up using. Part of his job was to make those videos. This takes a long time and this is really hard. And I hope Austin is there more people in the future who are paid to make videos like this because I only showed one story and one experience. There are very important conversations and issues to be addressed. So I think a video just for each of those groups, if that is even possible, because everyone's experience is unique, not just for people of different races and ethnicities, people of different genders and sexualities, different disabilities, abilities, different family structures. There's so, so many things that need more representation that I think would be more accurate in our genetic counseling materials, because there's the appeal of simplicity in recruitment and wanting to keep these example sessions very straightforward and not putting any of what we actually hear in our sessions and our appointments and any of the actual stories. But I think it really just dilutes our field and how awesome it actually is and the kind of connections we make with people. It's not the cookie cutter recipe where ask question, get answer, ask question, get answer, say goodbye to patient. I think it's more effective to show those real experiences and show the complexities. If I was being paid, I would make more videos or if I had more money, I would hire people to make more videos because I think so many people can benefit from them and so many people deserve that representation. And of course, just little things like I'm not an expert. If I had more time, maybe it would have been more aesthetically pleasing. I would have better transitions and graphics and all those little things. I think it looks great. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think it was a beautiful representation of the complexity of genetic counseling sessions, but in a really bite-sized format that was accessible. So I think you did an excellent job of that. And I agree, it would be awesome to see more resources like this covering more stories, especially those that maybe don't always have as much representation in our field or on the internet or what would come across patients or perspectives. So I would love to see more of them as well and hope more genetic counselors are able to get to do that either through their job or through other projects, maybe more students too. Yeah. On that note as well, what I've noticed in a lot of different diversifying efforts and trying to improve, a lot of them seem like one-time initiatives where a task force is created and they get funding and they come up with this brilliant project, but then like all these other resources, they never get updated. So one of my inspirations or things that made me want to do a video too was after using the Master Genetic Counselor series, that was 10 years ago now. They're still cool, but definitely a lot of things have changed. Things change week to week for us. If we notice something 
something that's out of date, who do we go talk to? Like I said, can I just email the Department of Health and be like, I'll do this for you for free just because it needs to be done. And it's not something that's going to take a lot of time out of my day. But it's so strange that no one did this for 30 years. It's mind boggling, but I also understand the world is busy. There are a lot of things to cover. But in an ideal world, I hope you always knew who to email to get something done. (laughs) I think it's an important call to our profession to start thinking about some of these videos and resources do have a big reach. And so where can we put our time and effort and which are going to have the most impact and the most need to be updated over time? I think that's important consideration and food for thought for folks who are volunteering or part of NSGC or other projects thinking about how we can move it forward. Because I agree, I keep watching videos and resources and books in our field, and it does move so fast that things get outdated. And we would love for patients to see and perspectives to see the current and future field, not 30 years ago, genetic counseling, because hopefully there's a lot of big changes coming as well. Yes. Agreed. I realized too, in like discussing these topics, language is really important and something I realized, and I try to be better about it, just also acknowledging that the groups that we've mentioned and the things we need, they're historically excluded. I think underrepresented is very passive. When we discuss these topics, who do we assign responsibility and hold accountable to fix these issues? When you acknowledge historically excluded, then you can actually go back, well, where in history did this happen or what occurred that made this happen, what is still occurring, and then you have somewhere to actually act on versus just, we all know the problems there and we'll talk about the problem, but a lot of the language doesn't imply what action needs to be done. Excellent point. And I think kind of comes full circle with creating a very thoughtful video script and thinking about the language, I think from every step of the way, thinking about how we share and talk about these resources and even from creating them and creating the script. So I really appreciate you sharing your perspective, both on this specific project, but how it's made you think about our field and the direction our field is going in terms of educational efforts and recruitment as well. I know we could probably talk all day about this, but are there any other topics or last points you want to mention regarding your capstone project that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, I would give a huge shout out to my program, Boise State, got to be a part of their inaugural cohort, which some people would think like, oh, that's intimidating. Like, we don't know what that is, but I couldn't have been anywhere more perfect and more supportive. And one thing that they continually made sure to remind us is that all of this is a moving target. It's semantics, but we shied away from using cultural competency to name it because there's no way to be competent. And I fully acknowledge that things I put in my video could be wrong wrong or outdated in months or years, or someone could pick out like, hey, that wasn't the best way to say that. Again, always going back to so many things need to be updated. For example, all of the newborn screening letters I read used very, very, very gendered language. It's something so, so easy to fix, yet it doesn't happen. To future students, to current counselors, I think the most valuable skill to have is just the humility to acknowledge that there's never going to be an end to any of these things. There's never going to be an end-all project. No one project can cover it all. It's just a continual learning process that I'm on, that people continue to be on. But I just hope that this is an effective step in the right direction. 
I think that's a great point for us to end our conversation today. And I really appreciate you being here and sharing about your project with us. So thanks, Leanne. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. And again, this is another one of those things that's curbing that imposter syndrome as a new grad. (laughs) So I really appreciate you watching the video and, and getting so much from it. And then just one last thing to add for any prospective students or even current trainees listening who just have any questions that it's hard to connect with people, feel free to reach out to me. My Twitter is at Leanne GC, L-I-A-N-N-G-C, or you can email me. It's Leanne Jimmons at Gmail, L-I-A-N-N-J-I-M-M-O-N-S at gmail.com. I love helping people. I love helping prospective students because I sure needed a lot of help to get here and I'd like to pay it forward. And also MGPN is a great place to go as well. And you'll also find me there. To watch Leanne's educational video, you can go to youtube.com and search Introduction to Genetic Counseling, colon, Sickle Cell Trait and Sickle Cell Disease. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. I hope you enjoyed and learned from these conversations as much as we did. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner, and we'll see you next time.